0: This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: Guidelines are great, but they only go so far. And I became extremely interested in why we could have good policy and good law and still have bad care.
2: Welcome. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is episode three entitled The Future of Ethics events that changed our direction. Recently in Denver, the Future of Medicine Conference at Censura Health gave us the opportunity to talk with international ethics leaders about the future of healthcare ethics. We traded stories of events that convinced us that we needed to change, that what we had done in the past cannot be the way we continue in the future.
0: It was 1999, I went to the doctor with my dad And uh, the doctor, after a series of tests, indicated that my dad needed a heart stent, which at the time was a relatively common procedure. So I got all the information, we scheduled the exam, walked out of the doctor's office with my dad, and he said to me, they're not going to experiment on me. At the time I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. And a year later he was dead, found in a dog cage feeding his dog. The reason is that he had a fifth grade education and he had heard the whispers of the Tuskegee trials and others. He was an African-American man who grew up in North Carolina and he was resistant to a simple procedure and it cost him his life at the age of 58, much too early for anyone to die. I didn't know it at the time, but these whispers shape a lot of care and aren't discussed in ways that we all understand. So the aha moment for me was the need to meet people where they are. It's very personal for me, obviously. And to educate them for twofold reasons. One, to understand the risk of these trials, particularly in the future of medicine with increasing technology, genetics and the like. And two, to make sure they get the full benefit of the technology and the future aspects of medicine.
2: That was James Corbett, senior vice president Community Health Improvement and Values Integration at Centura Health in Denver. Then we spoke to Millie Solomon. I'm the
1: president of the Hastings Center, which is a freestanding, nonpartisan research institute, the founding bioethics institute in the nation. And I'm also a professor of medical ethics at Harvard Medical School. My aha moment is from quite a while ago. I've been concerned about the quality of care near the end of life since I was a pretty young social scientist and a pretty naive one. I thought that if you had consensus on policy guidelines, if you had 200 court cases that were all pretty much saying the same thing that... Patients, if they could speak for themselves and families, if they couldn't, um, had the right to refuse unwanted treatment. If you had all that consensus at the policy level and at the legal level, what's the problem? We ought to be able to deliver the kind of care for people near the end of life that they want and need and not impose unwanted, burdensome technologies on them. So that's sort of how I started off. I was at a speaking engagement basically advocating these guidelines that already existed. The Hastings Center had extremely influential guidelines that came out in 1987, and I was working with them at the time. And there was a special presidential commission that also had these guidelines. So I was in a rather naive state promoting best practices, you might say, and policies that were meant to guide care at the bedside near the end of life. After my talk, a young man named... Brian, and I remember his name. And this was a long time ago. Sparkling blue eyes came up to me and he actually grabbed my forearm and he stared into my eyes and he said, you mean they didn't have to do that to her? And he proceeded to tell me this very compelling story about his grandmother who had suffered a stroke and was in a nursing home. At first, she recognized him and his parents and she seemed to be pleased that they would come to visit. Then she suffered a second stroke and she began to decline pretty badly. And when he would come to visit, she would just shake her head back and forth, signaling no. She needed dialysis. She was on the edge of kidney failure. And Brian and his parents both asked the nursing home not to send her back, not to send her to the hospital. They could see that she was ready to go, and they wanted a more hospice-oriented or palliative care approach. The nursing home was appalled, and they insisted, and they sent her for dialysis. And, and Brian was remembering this. It, it wasn't even fresh. It hadn't happened just a year ago. It happened quite a while ago. But families take these as violations, and they hold them for a long time. And I could see that Brian really hadn't really recovered from what he felt was an assault on his grandmother. So my aha moment was, guidelines are great, but they only go so far. And I became extremely interested in why we could have good policy and good law and still have bad care. And so I developed a collaborative project with, I was not at the Hastings Center then, but I approached them to develop a collaborative project in which we tried and did study the knowledge and attitudes and views of physicians and nurses and compared what they believed to what these guidelines said. And we unearthed an amazing set of insights and then designed an educational program based on those insights. I guess I'll end with one of the most striking findings was that we found an inordinate percentage of critical care physicians who said they were acting against their conscience when providing care to the terminally ill. And when you probed, which direction were those concerns? Was it that they were over-treating or under-treating? They were almost all in the direction of over-treatment. As a researcher, I found that incredibly compelling, yes, and but also interesting. As a researcher, I, I didn't understand, aren't the doctors in charge? Why would they be saying that they were overtreating people and doing things they themselves did not believe in? And so then we had a second round of research that tried to understand and unpack that. It's a problem that hasn't gone away. I think we still need to get much better in how we help people through this final stage of life. I think we've made some progress, but not enough, so when I think about the future of medicine. I hope we will stick to this. We've made progress. We can't get disheartened, but we just haven't made enough, and we need to keep going.
2: Amy Haddad also joined the conversation. Amy is president of the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities and director of Creighton University's Center for Health Policy and Ethics.
3: When I started working in clinical ethics, it was always in an acute care setting. So my foundation was in that kind of a model. And then I had the opportunity to do some work in home care and I really felt that a lot of what we were doing in the hospital in really urgent care setting didn't really fit with the kinds of issues that I was encountering and the other staff that I was working with encountered in the home care setting. And then fast forward, so I wrote a little bit about that, but it was more theoretical and just saying, you know, here are some of the things that seem to be different about home care. You're kind of a guest in someone's home and the family's trying to figure out what to do with you and who's in charge, which is different than who's in charge in institutional setting. But then we started to look at education, ethics education for the different hospitals that we work with locally. And we realized that we weren't noticing all the people that work outside of the hospital in all these different kinds of ambulatory settings, in same-day surgery, in all the various clinics, in rehab centers. So we decided we would talk to them about First of all, if they felt that they had ethical issues that weren't being addressed, because we weren't doing really any education with them at all, unless they would wander into something that we were doing that was clearly more hospital-oriented or institution-oriented or based. And we had focus groups with them, and they told us that, yes, in fact, they do have a lot of ethical situations that they deal with in relative isolation. So it wasn't even a matter of them being confused about who they might call for assistance, it just never entered their head that there would be anyone that would even understand what they were talking about. Because the things that they were running into weren't life and death, usually, and they just didn't know that anybody else, you know, it was kind of at that level, beginning level of awareness that you're having this problem, but you just at that point can't imagine that others might be having a similar sort of problem, and then why it would even be called an ethical problem. So they talked about being isolated. They talked about, again, that issue of their relationship with patients is much different than it is in the hospital. The who's in charge question came up again. How much can I take control? And when I get frustrated with patients because the agreed upon plan of care isn't actually being acted upon, what do I do about that? And I have short interactions with people, but maybe over a long period of time, particularly in chronic conditions. So it was just all of those things that made it seem like there's a world out there that we're not absolutely sure, first of all, what the issues are, if they're they're going to be easy to create a typology or not. And then once we do that, what kind of methods might be best suited for this geographically stretched group of clinicians who all work in the same system, let's say, but are doing very different things in their day-to-day interactions with each other and with patients. What we decided to do were very, very short podcasts, about 10 minutes or so, and conversation with people who are doing the work. And we've had some fascinating opportunities to talk to people about their work. But we're kind of just at that stage where we're trying to get a lay of the land and find out what's really troubling people. And then the next step will be beyond raising awareness, but trying to figure out what might be best practices to help individuals who are working in this relative isolation.
2: Our conversation went from the inclusion of culture to ingrained challenges we're facing to listening to the variety of ethical issues in a diversity of settings. You know, it's too bad we did not have an international perspective in this conversation. Oh, wait a minute.
4: Hi, it's Christy Simpson. I'm head of the Department of Bioethics at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. And I'm also currently the president of the Canadian Bioethics Society. It's interesting thinking about how ethics works in different contexts, because my aha moment actually relates really closely to that. So I grew up in a rural area, and when I was home one weekend, one of my family members was saying, well, I'm going in for a colonoscopy, and I'm hoping that it's the son of our longtime family physician, because if he's there doing the colonoscopy, I'll feel so much better because it's somebody that I know, and when it's an embarrassing procedure, it really helps to have somebody you know there to relieve that anxiety. Fast forward a couple of weeks, I was back here at work, and a colleague was going in for a colonoscopy who works in the healthcare system. And the colleague was saying, I really hope that nobody I know is involved with my colonoscopy because it's embarrassing, and it'll cause more anxiety for me if there's somebody there that I know. And so I thought in the space of two weeks, I've had this moment where completely different reactions to that nature of the relationship, whether you know someone or whether you don't. And in ethics, we often talk about care of the strangers or care for strangers. And what does that mean in terms of how we understand our ethical principles? But it really got me thinking a little bit more about where am I coming from when I'm doing my ethics? And how does that play out in the different contexts that I practice, which is, can be both urban, but can also be very much in rural contexts. And so I really started to think much more around how, in some ways, arguably, you could say a lot of our current ethical principles, or sort of the typical ones that we go to, are really urban centric. They've been primarily in an urban setting, more, and picking up on what Amy was saying, more in an acute care setting. And so they have a particular way that when we talk about respect for autonomy or respect for patients, there's a particular way that we understand what that means but it doesn't unfold necessarily the same way in rural communities or in rural healthcare, And so in that juxtaposition of talking with folks in two different geographic locations, starting to say, well, maybe we need to think a little bit more about what values are relevant in different locations and how do they help us rethink the foundational principles that we've been working on or working with for so long in ethics as well. Not to toss them out, but actually to raise that question of, do we need to rebalance them differently? Do we need to revalue some of them in terms of the role of relationships and how knowing someone can actually improve your care and not necessarily inhibit or cause problems with it?
2: I've noticed in some themes across the stories, uh, trust, the levels of trust that are there between clinicians and patients or the public, how we actually help Facilitate the types of conversations that need to be had from people of very different points of view that comes out especially around the end of life? And how do you facilitate those conversations such that they don't divide people more, they actually bring people together? The aha moment story that I wanted to offer was a physician and colleagues who gave me a phone call and told me about an area where they felt compromised. And the area was... Obviously they dealt with children and they were worried that their waiting rooms were actually being a vector for the transmission of disease. They explained it to me such that I have patients, young patients whose parents feel that certain types of vaccinations would be inappropriate or ill-advised for them. And my waiting room, I have kids who've had vaccinations and those who haven't. And I'm worried that with a low level of vaccination rate in my particular area, that my waiting room is going to be a vector for the transmission of disease. What that aha moment meant for me of hearing that story was that was the type of issue which needed a number of different stakeholders to be involved. Usually in healthcare ethics, I had been involved with teams, committees, structures that were within a particular health system or a particular hospital. And this was an issue that was calling us out of the four walls of our hospital or our health system and necessitating us to collaborate with people we hadn't collaborated with before in that particular geography i was in at that time i hadn't introduced myself to the public health officer in that county once i came upon that type of an issue i knew i needed to do that the systems and structures i had created within that system or that hospital were very good but there were no systems or structures to be able to address a public health issue like vaccination rates and how to have those conversations well with people from different points of view and what stakeholders we needed to bring in with respect to their advice whether that was an epidemiologist or an infectious disease expert from the local children's hospital that's eventually what we did. We did bring in the public health officer. We did bring in their infectious disease people and their epidemiologist. And we did bring in family members from different points of view to try to walk through how to best walk together through this issue. The aha moment was the structures and systems I had put in place in the past were not the structures and systems that the future needed in doing ethics.
1: May I ask you a question about that? So did that work? And if it worked, I'm going to guess it was Canada, not the US. <laughs> Seriously, we are not able to have this kind of conversation. So tell us, did well,
2: it, it go? It worked from the point of view that, number one, people called the question, and people who were different stakeholders with different institutions were willing to have the conversation together. So it worked that we were able to utilize the public health officer, the epidemiologist, the infectious disease person from the local hospital, What we started to try to figure out was what is the best way to engage the public in this type of issue? What's the best way to have that conversation? Is it best for physicians to have it or is it better as in other studies that have been done for a nurse to have it with family members or patients? So we basically tried to identify different modalities to utilize that would improve the short answer to your question really it was actually in the u.s not canada that's heartening Um, and it did improve from the point of view of not only just that specific issues but for those different stakeholders to come together and think how do we need to create some different structures for these type of conversations that we haven't had in the past but we need to have now or we're going to need to have in the future ebola would be another example i know that when that occurred within the united states and different organizations were trying to talk with each other, even within the same county. There was a bit of hoarding of technology or hazmat suits. Some places had them, other places didn't. And you have to figure out how we're we going to have the conversation together so that we're addressing this together as opposed to competitively. That would just be another example of that kind of issue in a different type of conversation. James.
0: I think part of why if I can speak really, that really question whether or not it was in the United States or Canada is the underlying payment model and the underlying incentive model of different systems. So while the US is kind of finally taking a move a slow move if you will towards value-based care, a move away from the fee-for-service or heads in beds which is what CFOs highlight. It seems, regrettably, that the model that I think we all like, the model in England, they're actually taking a step back, regrettably, from their model of the budget-based care. You're seeing them being decimated, particularly the long-term care. Recent was there in December doing some work with them. and It's sad to watch because I think we all understand that the preventive model, that value-based model that the U.S. is slowly marching on, is one that allows us to focus on less procedures and the need to churn procedures to make revenue. But at the same time, there is a great risk that you start to undertreat patients and it's quite the same risk. And regrettably when I was in England, there was a front page news of a journalist who died and who's sad that he couldn't get the medication that he needed. Now, there's only a 15 to 20% chance that medication would work. He was a famous journalist, but the powers that be made a decision that the cost of that medication, roughly $100,000, was not worth the potential benefit of it. Since he was a famous journalist, he had the ability to write about it, and he wrote that he understood the decision, but that he wished that the investment was made so he could spend more time with his kids. He wrote this on his deathbed.
1: That's one difference between us and Canada. Another difference, and I think what was impelling my comment, was just how fractious we are right now. And if my wish would be that bioethics could play some role in helping us heal the distrust that we're suffering from. And we're polarized along different dimensions. So the pro-vaccine versus anti-vaccine is one dimension. And that doesn't line up with left-right, really but it shares with a left-right vitriol disdain and distrust. The levels of distrust in the states right now are so high in various groups. James's story was about distrust because of a history of racial stigmatization. So I just put it out there. When I think about the future of bioethics, I'm hopeful that bioethics can use the skills it has to uncover the values that we want to guide our lives and talk about them in as nonpartisan a way as we can. What are the things that we cherish? Can we talk at that deeper level? We are going to disagree. We're going to have different notions of fairness, for example. There are going to be conservative and progressive notions. We see that right now with the repealing of the ACA, where there are conservative views that want to base insurance on actuarial assessments versus community so I was commenting really on a very divided nation, multiple ways that we're divided, not all of them political, but certainly political as well. And raising the question, does bioethics have anything to say there? Is there anything we can do?
3: This is Amy. What I would wish in the future is that folks in bioethics become more knowledgeable truly about how... And you said earlier, the whole cost issue with healthcare is very complicated. But I think we all need to do a much better job, those of us who work in ethics, at making an attempt to really understand at least some basic financial rules about how insurance works and things like that. Because what I sometimes hear is just kind of a collective vilifying, all insurers, all pharma, all of everything... And if we could take some time to understand some of the financing so that we can knowledgeably talk about these issues, I think it would bring a lot to the conversation with our other background in ethics. Do you know what I mean? Because if we don't have the part where we understand what people are talking about, it's really hard for us to make any kind of points that are going to have any heft. I spend a lot of time working in pharmacy ethics, And I hate economics, but I'm making an effort to understand more about it because the complexity of marketing and pricing and all of that is really central to understanding the ethical implications of it. So I would put out a hope, I guess, in the future that we'd become more knowledgeable so we can engage in deeper conversations with people who really need to hear what we have to bring, but we need to understand what their world is too.
2: Thanks, Amy. Christy, I'm going to come to you. You've heard Canada talked about a couple of times with the U.S., but any place you wanted to jump off in any of the comments?
4: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, and it's even just hearing what Amy was saying. Now I have five other thoughts that I wanted to bring into this, but I think I'll go back to one of the points that Millie was making and Amy too. reasoning that question around how do we trust? How do we come together? How do we put things right, if you will, or sort of get it more right, and it makes me think um, here in Canada we've had at the federal level what's called a truth and reconciliation report, which is about how we have treated our Indigenous peoples and how do we begin to move forward past taking them out of their homes, putting them in residential schools, and all of the trauma and harm that that has caused, and I think in particular for me one of the words that does come out of that is, do we know what it truly means to reconcile? And what does that look like? And I think partly of building trust is actually about reconciliation. So the fact that it's called truth and reconciliation, I think trust is a big part of that. And interestingly for me then too, it's a large report that sort of tackles a number of different sectors, but part of it is a question about, well, what is healthcare's role within reconciliation? And that can be in the one-to-one relationships that we have with patients in terms of clinicians and patients. It can mean accessibility anywhere in the healthcare system, not just on the basis of geography. But do you feel welcome? Do you feel understood? Or is it a place that's also causing you more harm just by coming in those doors or being seen to be somebody that's different? And so that part about reconciliation and what does it mean to reconcile is something that I don't think we've really thought about in healthcare in the same kind of way that maybe in other circles they have, and I think that would be really important. The second point I guess I would bring up is in terms of even though there's differences between the American and Canadian healthcare system, cost is definitely one for us to consider as well. And I think sometimes when I've been part of conversations around cost or how much it costs to provide different forms of care, there's an interesting response that I see sometimes that people sort of just throw their hands up and go, well, we can't change the system, right? That's the way that it is. That's how healthcare works. Yes, it's complex, but, you know, it's too hard to figure out or too hard to make changes. And so we distance ourselves from the health system without really recognizing the fact that we're all part of creating the health system or changing the healthcare. system system. And so I've been doing a bit of a plug recently for people to make policy work interesting and engaging, that if you think of all the policies that we have in healthcare, all of the forms that we use, all the ways that we document what's happening on patient records, all of those things, they construct and shape what we're able to do in healthcare. And I think both from an economic perspective, thinking about is that the most efficient way to document? Is that most appropriate? Are we using our resources in the right place? It's also a call to say to ethics, have we thought enough about how we can engage at the policy level or changing forms level in a way that makes changes that seem small initially, but can add up to something that can make a big change in our healthcare system. And certainly then really insert and hear from the patients, from those who are working with patients most directly and across a variety of contexts. We often do ethics review of policy by healthcare ethics committees and those things, but bringing that forward to then say, well, how is that informing what we see going on at an organizational level or a broader health systems level in terms of governance and how that links with economics, I think is really important as well.
2: Thanks, Christy. At this point, does anyone else have another story?
1: Well, I'm going to be talking about it in the keynote tomorrow morning, but I think I wouldn't want us to have this podcast without bringing up something else that I think is huge for the future of medicine. And that is an array of transformative technologies that we're going to be facing. Now, if we thought it was hard to figure out how to use good old-fashioned life-sustaining technologies like ventilators and dialysis machines, hey, that was nothing compared to what we're seeing at the intersection of genomics and neuroscience and artificial intelligence and synthetic biology, especially gene editing with CRISPR-Cas9. And All of these are not only advancing in their own right, but they are integrating. new forms for assisted reproduction that were never possible before. So we are on the cusp of a, well, actually, a revolution. The World Economic Forum has called it the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And they are pointing to the advances and the intersections of advances across those kinds of technologies. And the future of medicine is going to have to figure out how we're going to use this. One of the biggest things is the amount of information that we're going to have, as well as the ways we're going to make babies, which Hank Greeley's written a book, I think it's called After Sex. It's going to be brand new array of ways of being in the world. And I hope that bioethics will serve as a sounding board to anticipate what the consequences might be. No technology is neutral. Some of these technologies, are. all of them are probably going to offer incredible benefits, but we ought to be careful about what we ask for and what we want to do. And there need to be some forums for us to discuss these, so I'm kind of foreshadowing what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow. I think bioethics has an absolutely crucial role to play in helping people understand the choices that we're going to face helping us decide the best uses for these technologies and some areas where we may make decisions proactively that we don't want to use these technologies or we don't want to use them for certain purposes.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode entitled The Future of Ethics, Events That Have Changed Our Direction. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on how the vision of healthcare ethics in the future might look different from the past. Please come back and join us again on the Ethics Lab podcast.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.